0: We read the Word of God this morning in Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, we'll read the entire chapter. The text is made up of verses 29 through 35 through the end of the chapter. We'll pay special attention to those verses as we read. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shalt thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. Speak not in the ears of a fool for he will despise the wisdom of thy words. Remember not the old land remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless for their redeemer is mighty he shall plead their cause with thee Apply thine heart unto instruction and thine ears to the words of knowledge withhold not correction from the child For if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. My son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice, even mine. Yea, my reins shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things. Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. For surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Hearken unto thy father that begat thee, and despise not thy mother when she is old. Buy the truth, and sell it not also wisdom, and instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice... And he that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways. For a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey, and increaseth the transgressors among men. Here begins our text. Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and it was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. This far we read the word of God. Beloved saints in Jesus Christ, among the many dangers to the Christian life and the many temptations that Satan uses to draw us aside from the Christian life, there are two prominent ones, especially in Proverbs 23, wine and women wine in the text you must understand represents all alcoholic beverage whether made from fruits that would be wine specifically or grains that would be beer or strong drinks wine and women not only are those two mentioned particularly in proverbs 23 again and again but they're mentioned in connection with each other there is some connection between giving oneself over to wine and women. Already in verse 20, the Holy Spirit said, Be not among wine bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty. Now again, in the context, the immediate context of our text, the warning against the whore and the strange woman. A whore is a deep ditch and a strange woman is a narrow pit. And in that connection, immediately, the warning, an extended warning now against wine, that is against drunkenness, and embedded in the warning against drunkenness, this reminder, thine eyes shall behold strange women, the two go together. The word of God that we have before us this evening is a word that covenant people of God need to be aware of and take to heart, that's evident. From the fact that the Proverbs are written not, first of all, for Solomon to teach the Egyptians and the Philistines how to live, but to teach the Israelites how to live a godly life. And so it's a word of God that comes to you and to me also this morning. A necessary word for at least three reasons in the first place. It is the nature of humans. I'll say of youth, but I don't mean to limit it to youth. It is the nature of humans to say, I can handle wine and women. There is maybe a point I shouldn't cross. There's maybe a point up to which I can go and not one step farther, but I can get as close to that line as possible. And in the process, the child of God actually is transgressing the law of God, though thinking to himself that he's fine and Has this under control? And one thing the word of God will bring out, as I'll drive home later this morning, a man cannot flirt with sin and say he has it controlled. Our human nature needs this word. In the second place, it's necessary because of the society in which we live. Wine and women are an accustomed part of life in 21st century North America. Wine and women are the sort of thing that when you go to work tomorrow or to college, if you go to college, or work amongst the world, you'll hear people talking about what their weekend consisted of. And wine and women will be prominent in what the weekend consisted of. It's promoted. It's almost expected that wine and women, sexual promiscuity and drunkenness, in other words, are just a part of the life of anyone, that's the day in which we live. In the third place, the warning of the text is necessary because we are not of the world. We are the covenant people of God. We are those indwelt by the Spirit of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, And the calling came to Israel, live differently from the world. Do not be like them. The more you are like them, the more it is not apparent that you are God's covenant people. If you are God's covenant people, as you say you are, show it in how you live. And that's the calling that comes to us also today. To live as a covenant child of God. Even more, to live in covenant fellowship and friendship with God requires us to say I must put aside I must stay away from drunkenness and promiscuity the child of God that understands that that gets the point set forth in the text today is wise I bring that up because that's the context of the book of Proverbs in general the book of Proverbs are books are, are, are is a book about wisdom these are not Benjamin Franklin's Proverbs. These are not some other wise, worldly man's moral sayings of how to live a, a good life outwardly. The wisdom set forth in the book of Proverbs is a wisdom that comes, first of all, from above. And that's why in Proverbs 8, the Holy Spirit directs our attention to a wisdom who is a person, who is the Son of God, now come in the flesh the one who is the power and the wisdom of God unto salvation, whose saving work in your life and in mine transforms and renews our understanding so that we no longer think of things and earthly life as we once did before conversion, but we think of them distinctively and to the glory of God. Now the one who has wisdom, the one in whom Jesus Christ lives, will hear the word of God today and say that is right. That is right. I must guard against promiscuity and I must guard against drunkenness. And the wise will take it to heart. Understand something before I go farther, and that is I do not know you as a congregation in any intimate detail. And if there is anyone in the congregation today, and I will address them presently, but if there is any of you given over to this sin. I do not know that. I do not know who you are, but I do know that in churches of Jesus Christ throughout the world and in the PRCA also are some who say, after hearing even an exposition of a text such as this, I still can handle it. I'm not ready to admit I am a sinner in bondage to sin and in need of help. And so I say again, the wise will understand. I call your attention to the text under the theme the drunkard's folly. We're gonna, in the first point, explain of whom the text speaks. The drunkard is one who is filled with wine. In the second point, we're going to explain what the folly is. He or she is deceived by wine. And in the third place, we're going to bring again The gospel call in the third point admonished to wisdom. So the text does not speak merely of one who drinks wine or beer, one who in moderation and understanding the danger inherent in excess but also the gift God gives in wine and alcoholic beverages uses it to his glory. The text is not prohibiting the use of it altogether, but the text speaks of one who is filled with, controlled by, and given over to alcoholic beverages. And that comes out in two ways. In the first place, it comes out in verse 30. It's speaking of those that tarry long at the wine and that go to seek mixed wine. On the one hand, this refers to the man now who comes home from work, and instead of sitting down at the dinner table and having a glass of wine or a beer, and having consumed that and having finished the meal and having given thanks to God, arises and leaves the table and goes about whatever activity the evening holds for him, instead it refers to one who sits down at the table, and the wine means even more than the food, and tarrying long sitting down at the table is about the last thing he does that day. The glass gets filled again. And when empty, gets filled again. And again. When he does get up from the table, he's on a search. He's going to seek mixed wine. This refers to a man who's out shopping. And on his grocery list is especially the best quality of wine. Because drunkenness involves not only uh, giving over to too much quantity, but can also say it has to be of this quality. Drinking mixed wine, that's my wine mixed with spices and honey perhaps to make it sweeter. Drinking mixed wine itself is no more wrong than drinking any alcoholic beverage. But when the goal of one's life is to get and have the best, That is part of what the Holy Spirit speaks against. So you have the description in verse 30. The text is speaking of a drunkard. The second indication in the text that it's speaking of such are the questions in verse 29 of which answer, uh, verse 30, consists. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? And described as one who is drunk at the moment. Who hath woe? Who has sorrow? Who has expressions of moans and groans and grief? Here's an irony. It's going to come out in the question who have contentions, who have babbling again too. Here's an irony. The very thing a person tries to escape from by drinking sometimes, anxiety and troubles in life, that very thing comes out a drunk person gives vent to them. And the words woe and sorrow refer to one who is giving vent to, expressing the grief and the turmoil of his or her life. Who hath contentions, who's ready to start an argument in a minute flat or less, and all it takes is you saying something wrong, and they're ready to go to blows. Who hath babbling, there the word especially is anxiety, if woe and sorrow referred more to a general uh, grief, the word babbling refers to one's anxieties that are coming out in uh, drunkenness. A drunkard person, a drunk person, often has very little control over what he or she says. And out it all comes. Who hath wounds without cause? We'll come back to that in verse uh, 35, "They have stricken me." Shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beat me and I felt it not. Why do you have broken bones? Why do you have those bruises? I'm not sure somebody, no, not me, somebody must have done this to me, but I'm not sure where and when and how. Who talks that way? It's a person who's drunk. And lastly, who hath redness of eyes, whose eyes, either in their red or the dull look about them, gives away that they are under the influence of alcohol. The text in the questions of verse 29 and the answer of verse 30 makes clear it is speaking of one who is filled with wine, not has had a glass in moderation, but is drunk. At this point before going further, let us see from the New Testament Why drunkenness to be either once under the influence to the point of drunkenness, or to be repeatedly to live as a drunkard? Either way, why such is indeed a sin in the sight of God? And the New Testament passage we're going to go to is Ephesians 5 verse 18. In Ephesians 4 already, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul sets forth a doctrine of an old man which we must put off And a new man which we must put on. The life of Jesus Christ in us out of whose power we must live. That's Ephesians 4. Ephesians 5 begins applying it to all the different sins and circumstances of life in which we find ourselves. And in that connection, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now the clear teaching of the Holy Spirit here that drunkenness is sin is first of all in the word to be drunk with wine in that is excess and excess means immorality, immorality of all sorts. But in the second place there's the contrast. Don't be drunk. Don't be inebriated, intoxicated with wine. Be filled with the Spirit the Holy Spirit thus pointing out that both wine and the Holy Spirit are influences and powers. You live out of them. They direct the way you or I act, but you cannot be filled with both simultaneously. It is one or the other. The point is to be filled with wine will lead one to give oneself over to all sorts of sins, whereas to be filled with the Holy Spirit will lead one to look at the law of God and the word of God and say, that's a warning to me, that's a boundary outside of which I may not go, and that's a blessed word of God to me, teaching me that within the boundary is happiness. The point of verse 18 of Ephesians 5, that you cannot be filled with wine and filled with the Spirit simultaneously. The point is not that everyone who has ever gotten drunk therefore demonstrates they do not have the Holy Spirit in them. The point is not that they are therefore not regenerated. The point is rather they are not living out of the power of that spirit and they are not going to the right place to the word of God to be filled with the power out of which they must live. That's the word of God in the New Testament that drives home the sin of drunkenness. Every time I live out of the old man, whether I'm drunk or not, I am sinning. I am not living to the glory of God. Every time I live out of the new man, I will live to the glory of God. And drunkenness brings out that old man in me. And the Holy Spirit empowers the new. Now here's a gospel point. Because there is gospel, even in the admonitions of the word of God. You and I have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who was never under the influence of alcohol. There's two things to underscore there. The one is that as far as the history goes, the Pharisees said, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber. And Jesus himself, in response, told them, I'm not a glutton and a wine-bibber, I use alcoholic beverage. But it's not brought me under the power of any. I have served my Father in obedience to his will, faithfully, and never been drawn astray. So on the one hand, the godly, we learn from Jesus Christ there, the godly get accused of sins, of which we're not guilty, just to try to make the sinners making the accusation, Feel less guilty. Here's a second gospel point, and that is that we behold now the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. In saying that he was never drunk, we're saying, in addition, that he never violated the law of God in any respect. His righteousness is perfect. The only man. God but come in the flesh the only human who can suffer the wrath of God for sin for this sin too on the parts of God's people because in him is no sin and that says right away to anyone who's ever sinned this sin repent and look to Jesus Christ both for forgiveness and the power to live a new and holy life the power is found in him I want to make three applications as I bring this first point to a conclusion. The first is the obvious application. It's the one that just stares you in the face, and that is you and I confessing Christians claiming to be the children of God may not be given over to drunkenness. And in a day and age in society again, I said that in the in the introduction, in which this is common, we must be distinct. There's a danger though that we think that the application of this passage is very narrow, that there may be only a few here or there who really need the word. There's a danger that perhaps most of us come away saying, well, that was a good, good sermon. It, didn't really hit me and in order to show that this word of God is for all of us, my second and third applications broaden the text taking the basic principle of the text and broadening it. The second is this, if we must not be brought under the influence of alcoholic beverage, then what other substances are there that we might be prone to come under the influence of, that we must guard against? Gluttony was in the context, so food. Maybe other drugs. Maybe drugs that have been prescribed to us and so they're not wrong to use, but we have found some benefit in using them not the way they're prescribed, not according to the prescription, and then in another way we're guilty of the same sin of which the text uh, points us to one instance in drunkenness. Or in Michigan, only within the last couple of years uh, has marijuana become legalized. And so that reminds us to ask the question so marijuana is legalized? <coughs> Does the civil government, in legalizing something, make it morally right for the child of God to use? And the principle embedded in this text, even though you find the word marijuana nowhere in the scriptures, the principle in this text is no. The use of it does not make it morally acceptable to God. Why not? Because if wine brings you under the influence of alcohol, so do drugs. I'm not talking about prescription drugs now. I'm talking about hard drugs, marijuana, etc. And the young people of not only this congregation, but other PRCs must be reminded that in this area too, we are to be distinct from the world. No substance may control us. The third and broader yet application is that this text is teaching us the folly of sin and every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us therefore needs to see the folly of sin. Every one of us needs to see that there is in me and you perhaps a pet sin, a besetting sin, one we sort of like, one we're willing to tolerate for a time, and we must see that inasmuch as that sin controls us, there is a principle set forth here in the word of God. And the principle is turn from it. Find that it's hindering our relationship with God and turning from it in the power of Christ grow closer to God. I come to the second point, deceived by wine. Here we're going to be looking at the whole rest of the text in order because the text is really about not just who, that is the drunkard, but what is his or her folly. There are five specifics and then three generals, three general points that our text brings out. The five specifics, we're going to start at verse 31 and work our way verse by verse through the end of the text. In the first place, what is it about wine that deceives? And the answer is the earthly properties It's what wine looks like, and it's how wine tastes. Look thou not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. I haven't lately compared this verse to other Bible versions, to other translations, but I will acknowledge that this verse and other verses in the text are not easy to translate into the English, and it might be another version gives you a, a more clear idea of what's intended. This is what I understand verse 31 to mean. Don't look at the color of the wine when it's red. Number two, there's something about the wine in the cup. It, it looks delicious. In fact, giveth his color has the idea of it's gleaming at you with its eyes. And then when it moveth itself right refers to how smoothly, aright, <coughs> right straightly, how smoothly it goes down. The properties of wine or alcohol, what it looks like and how it tastes, are what make it deceptive. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Remember that Satan came to Eve and used these two arguments to convince her to eat of the forbidden fruit. On the one hand, it looks good, and on the other hand, it will taste good. And you see that Satan hasn't ever strayed from those two basic arguments. It looks good. It tastes good. Add to that, perhaps, everybody is doing it. Or, what will people think if I don't? And so you have an alluring of sin. The Holy Spirit, verse 31, is saying, don't be deceived. That's what makes wine deceptive. Now the deceptiveness of wine in the second place is set forth in verse 32 at the last. When it's all over with, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Here wine is personified. It's wine that bites. It's wine that stings. The uh, The teaching of the Holy Spirit, of course, is the consequence. The drunkenness does that but put wine as a person, wine saying I look good just like a strange woman would. I look good. I can give you something you want. And you give into it, and at the last you find out this was not really what I wanted. Not my new man. This was not wholesome. This was not helpful. I have been deceived. And so verse 32 says at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. If you have a pet serpent or a pet adder and you find one day that bites and stings you, you say this is not what I expected in having this as my pet. Well, then don't let bottles and strange women be our pets. The sting of an adder and the bite of a serpent at the very least hurts. Hurts. And then not infrequently, it does something more than hurt, it kills. That is what wine and alcohol does both to the body, how many have died while under the influence, as well as to the soul. But when that happens, when you have realized that wine and alcohol destroyed you, If you should go to wine, being personified in the text, to say, you deceived me. You said more of you would be good. You said more of you would taste good. You said more of you looked good, and I believed you. You deceived me. Then wine, Satan through it, looks back at us and says, you mean you believed me? You're the fool, not me. That's the point of the Holy Spirit in personifying wine In verse 32, and again, how often does Satan use, if not the means of alcohol, some other means? In an attempt to bring us down and to destroy us, he comes to us and says, I'm your friend. You can trust me. I've been here before. It's new to you. I've been there before. This is going to be fun. And at the end, you say to him, you deceive me. And he looks at us and says, don't you know I'm Satan? Don't you know I'm the slanderer? Don't you know I'm the liar? You don't ever believe me if you're smart. Well, he wants us to, but that's the Holy Spirit's word to us today. Now in the third place, as to being deceived by wine, the spiritual consequences are pointed out and that's verse 33, thine eyes shall behold strange women and thine heart shall utter perverse things. There are many, many sins of which an inebriated person may become guilty, two of them are brought forth here as representing them all, thine eyes shall behold strange women." Now a strange woman, a promiscuous woman, is a danger to any male and man, even one who is not under the influence of alcohol. That is the human nature too, and Satan's uh, temptation of us. So why here, why for the drunkard is the beholding of strange women set forth as a danger? And the answer is twofold. On the one hand, because the drunkard has lost his inhibitions. He's no longer worrying about that new man and how to live to the glory of God. And so he's more ready even to give himself over to sin. And in the second place, because drunkenness is often a social sin, that is a sin committed in connection with others who will give themselves over to the same sin, and you don't find, even if there's a child of God or more than one child of God among them, you don't find a whole group of children of God saying, let's go have beer in excess, and we will praise God. You find yourself in the company of those who are given over That's why here it's set forth as a warning, even though it's a warning for the child of God at any point. And thine heart shall utter perverse things. In the heart of one who willingly gives him or herself over to drunkenness, in the heart of that person are blasphemous thoughts about God and the scriptures and Jesus Christ and holy things. Now they're in my heart and yours too by nature because of the old man of sin in us. But by the power of the spirit, when we have those thoughts, we say no. We say that sin. We say, Lord, forgive my sins and make me even to think rightly. And we go back to the word to form our thoughts in accordance with God's will. The drunkard doesn't do that, and so under the influence out of the mouth comes that which was in the heart, perverse things, wicked things. The elders come to a young person, again it could be an old person, and they say to that person, we know you were drunk on such and such a time at such and such a place. And we're going to charge you with sin of being drunk, and maybe there's several commandments we'll call that. Right now, that's not my concern. But in addition, we're going to charge you with sin against the seventh commandment because you did, under the influence, have unlawful sexual relations. We're going to charge you with sin against the third commandment. Because while you were sinning, while you were drunk, you said things about the Holy God or Christ or the church. You should not have said, at this point I'll add, I've heard this. This isn't just, it could. I've heard this. Now when the elders come to the person and say, we're going to charge you with all these commandments. Don't say to the elders, you're piling it on. No, what's being illustrated is the point in this text here. You got drunk and you gave yourself over to all the sins, the licentiousness of the old man that's inherent in drunkenness. And even if you weren't fully aware of all of them, maybe your drunkenness put you into some degree of semi-consciousness. You better confess them all as sin against God. The spiritual consequences, thirdly. In the fourth place, we come to the physical consequences in verse 34 and the first part of verse 35. Thou shalt be as those that lie down in the midst of the sea, or he that lieth upon the top of a mast. I understand these verses to be referring to the nausea and the loss and lack of sound judgment that characterize a person under uh, the influence. One who lies down, let's begin with, lieth at the top of a mast. You're in a ship, and the ship is in the middle of the ocean or the Mediterranean Sea. And there are waves so that even if you are on the deck of the ship, you are already be unsteady on your feet. But now you're the lookout, the lookout up on the mast in the watchman's hole up there. And the, the effect of... The waves is all the more prominent up there and you are being rocked back and forth and you are about to lose it. Well, that's an effect of drunkenness physically. He that lieth down in the midst of the sea is harder to explain or at least to understand what Solomon actually meant. I understand it not to be just a parallel. While you you were up in that uh, watchman's nest, you wanted to come down and lie down on the deck and your nausea is still bad. But it refers, I think, to somebody who says, I'm tired. I want to sleep. Oh, the water is such a soft, inviting bed. Loss of judgment, and to his or her drowning, goes and falls into the water. There are physical effects. Of drunkenness, The same comes out in the first part of verse 35, and we notice them already. The wounds that a person denies, or at least claims not to know how they were caused. And that brings us finally and fifthly to the last part of verse 35 as we're tracing through the text. The folly of drunkenness is expressed this way. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Which is to say, on the part of the drunkard, When will I become sober? Now that might be a good question. We want you to become sober. Because when you're sober, we can bring you the word. We can admonish you. You can go to your heavenly Father through Jesus Christ your Lord. You can confess your sin. You can seek forgiveness. You can turn from it in the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the reason this man wants to become sober. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. I want to do this all over. The folly of drunkenness is that it is a snare to him or her. And all he or she lives for is the bottle to get drunk again. I listed five specific ways in which the text points out the folly of drunkenness. Let's see the three more general ones. In the first place, the text indicated that the folly of drunkenness is both bodily, physical, and spiritual. And the world gets it. Now there was the world that gives itself over to sin. Then there's the world, ungodly unbelievers, as I say, we we gotta establish a program for the rehabilitation of alcoholics. And in that program, we're gonna establish it because we see both the earthly effects, the effects on a home, a marriage, a family, the effects on the person's own psychological well-being, the danger to society if they're driving down the road drunk. This has an effect on the body, but it has an effect on the soul, says the world, at least the psychological effect. If the world gets that, then let the Church of Jesus Christ see there's an even greater effect on the relationship between that drunkard and Jehovah God. Thus must we address the sin in our own lives or the lives of others as it shows itself. The folly is both bodily and spiritual. In the second place, the text has presented the folly in a graphic way I don't know of a more graphic passage in the scripture to expose the folly of drunkenness. There are other warnings against it. What the Holy Spirit is doing here is saying, look at that man, listen to him talk. Is he not a fool? And the sober person of sound mind and judgment looks at him or her and says, yes, he or she is a fool. Do you want to be a fool? In The third place, generally, the Holy Spirit spoke of these physical and spiritual effects as certain. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, thine heart shall utter perverse things, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, etc. I'm going to come back to something I said earlier. It is our nature to say, I can handle it. And every drunkard does at some point in life say, I can handle it. You're warning me of all these things that could happen. I know, I know they could happen. They won't to me. I can handle it. And the Holy Spirit in our text says, no, that's part of your folly. You cannot. You are already deceived. You cannot. Handle it. The very nature of alcohol and the very nature of Satan, our arch enemy, and your own weakness by nature means you cannot handle it. And now the applications out of the second point. First of all, to anybody in the congregation, I do not know who you are has to say this morning why is he exposing my sin to anyone in the congregation who says I am that fool the application is this now admit it now stop the excuses and now get the help you need And it's going to be more than saying, yes, yes, I'm gonna try never to do that again. The help you need is more than that. If you need to find a place that will help rehabilitate you, find it! You do need, you do need to come to your pastor or elders and say, I'm one of them, I need help. What a shame, we think to ourselves, what a shame that I would make my name known as one who is such a person in need of help. But do not the people of God come to Jesus Christ? Isn't that why Jesus Christ did miracles? People would come to him for miracles saying, I need help. And so go through the elders and your pastor to your Lord and Savior. Acknowledge your need. If instead you hear a sermon like this and say, yep, that's me. But I'll try harder. I think I can handle it. Didn't get the point of the text. Second application. Parents, are we guarding? Adults, are we setting an example? And are we teaching our children what it is to use a gift of God that in itself is inherently good in moderation? For one man, or in one family, that might mean that the man says, it is such a danger, and I know my own heart, I won't let it in my house. Child, you will not have it. You understand the parent has the authority to say that, how it will go in his own house. For another man, it might be that he says to his child, when the child comes of age, you've seen me drink it, child, but you've seen I know my limit." My limit isn't four because if it's five, I tipped over. That's not what I mean by my limit. My limit is one. Maybe, maybe my limit is two. My limit is a self-imposed limit long before I feel the negative effects. And I impose that limit on myself saying I will drink to the glory of God. As soon as I drink to the glory of me, I have crossed my limit. Do the parents teach the children the principles of wisdom and moderation as regards the use of alcohol? And then in the third place, because the application of the text has to be as broad as can be to each one of us, whether your sin is drunkenness or not, do you see how this fool is, you and me, by nature? With regard to whatever the besetting sin is, I can handle it. And then I commit it. Well, how could I handle it when I committed it? That, In the second place, my conscience says, you've sinned. And yet every one of us is ready to say of our besetting sin, I will seek it yet again. I love that sin. The warning then is not only for those who are given over to substance abuse, but for every one of us to see what sin does, and no longer to be deceived by it, to hate it, to turn from it. In the third place, there's an admonition in the text. Not every proverb has an explicit command. Proverbs set forth statements. They paint a picture and they leave you and me to get the point. But this one has an explicit command. Look thou not. There is a negative prohibition. And the reason for the negativeness is just like with regard to the law of God, eight of the Ten Commandments coming negatively, is my nature is to do so. So look thou not. There's a warning here. And that's a warning now that comes to you young people and to us adults. Don't be deceived by how it looks and how it tastes. But implied in the negative is a positive, And that's where I'm going especially in the third point. And the positive is, be wise. Whatever it is that drives you to the bottle, whether it be a desire for social acceptance, whether it be anxieties and troubles in your own life that you're trying to escape, there is a different response that the child of God must and in the power of Christ can make. And that represents and manifests wisdom. What is the response? Instead of opening the bottle, open the scriptures. Instead of going to that which does not satisfy, go to our God in prayer. That's wisdom. And that embedded in the text, not explicit, is the positive admonition. Instead of seeking to come under the influence of a thing, come under the influence and be under the influence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ our crucified and risen Lord. And with that, we're going to go back to Proverbs 9. It is Jesus Christ who is personified in chapter 9 as wisdom. If wine is personified in our text as that which must be avoided, chapter 9 personifies Christ as wisdom. And wisdom calls. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. Him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Where Jesus Christ is saying to his church in Old Testament language, I have a feast. I have joys. I have good tasting food. Come, eat of mine. And that bread and that wine that Christ prepares is not first of all an earthly bread and wine, but is first of all that which his body crucified on the cross and his blood shed, earned and obtained for us the blessings of salvation, of covenant fellowship with God, of righteousness, of a removal of the guilt of sin, and in eating of the power to live a new and godly life, Come and partake of these bounties. That's the admonition of our text implied as it comes out in Proverbs 9. And when, instead of turning to wine, we turn to God, to his word, and to the Holy Spirit, there is a happiness that no earthly substance can give. If for the drunkard, there are bruises on the body, nausea and other physical effects, then for the child of God, he might say, well, my body has pain, chronic pain. My body has a disease, a chronic disease. But my Lord is the Lord of my body, and he's preparing my body for something better. If drunkenness has a spiritual detriment to the body, then to confess... Jesus Christ as one's Lord and Savior and live out of His power is to find that there is spiritual health for the soul. If drunkenness leads one to behold strange women, then to come under the influence of Jesus Christ and His power and His Spirit is to love the Bride of Christ, the Church. If drunkenness leads one to utter perverse things, then to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit and recognize the power of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord is to utter praises to Jehovah God and words which build up the church of Jesus Christ. If the drunkard tarries long at the wine, then the child of God will strive instead to tarry long with God, to live in covenant fellowship and friendship with him, not only in church, but in my home, family life, private life. And the point is, in all of life's Troubles. The foolish say, I'll seek my solution and remedy here below. And the child of God says, I'll seek mine from above. Beloved, you have that wisdom in Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you, go get it, go find it, do whatever you have to. I'm saying, He has provided it for us. Now live out of it. That the wise will take to heart. God grant that. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, build us up now by thy word and spirit. Fill us with that spirit. Give us to live out of the power of that spirit. We do wrestle against the old man and the sins of the body. And our prayer is that thou wilt teach us to hate them more and more and to seek the power in thee to flee them and live according to thy law. And thus may all praise and honor and glory be thine, both in our life but also from our lips. For Jesus